Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today, I have Dr. Scott Knower. He's the Chief Pharmacy Officer at the Cleveland Clinic, which is right in my backyard of Cleveland, Ohio. He also has got his PharmD from the University of Nebraska, as well as his master's from the University of Kansas Medical Center. On top of running the Cleveland Clinic's pharmacy programs, Dr. Knower also recently was announced as the next CEO of American Pharmacists Association, or APHA. So congrats on that, Dr. Knower. That's an awesome announcement. And what other roles do you, have you had or do you currently hold in pharmacy? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. So I'm right now, I'm the APHA EVP CEO designate. I start on May 1st, and I will have a two-month overlap with the current CEO, Tom, who's a fantastic guy, to mentor me, and I'll be learning for two months, and I officially take over full-time on July 1st. You know, as far as other roles, I've been very professionally involved with a couple organizations. Overall, uh, ASHP has kind of been my professional home, so I, I bring sort of those experiences with me to, to APHA. And within that, though, I'm, I'm actually kind of like the APHA of health system pharmacy because I'm not just a hospital guy. We also have 20 retail community pharmacies, uh, a huge specialty pharmacy with compliance package. We're all about home infusion pharmacy, mail order pharmacy, and all of that. But other roles, I think one of my most fun roles has been contributing editor of AJHP, ASHP's journal, where they actually gave me my own column, Perspectives of the Chief Pharmacy Officer, but I also chaired the section of Pharmacy Practice Managers a while ago, and you know, I've, I've done many, many, many things. The other group I'm very involved with is uh, Vizient, formerly UHC, was the University Health System Consortium that mergers and acquisitions, and now it's Vizient, and I chair the Pharmacy Council. It's a great group of thought leaders from academic medical centers across the country. Wow, that's a, that's quite a bit there of a high positions you have. That's awesome. And I'm glad to see you're taking all those experiences, not just your, your work experience at the clinic and, and past roles into APHA, because that shows you really can understand every aspect of what pharmacists do across the country, which is what APHA represents. So that's that's awesome to bring all that to the table for them. Exactly, because, you know, APHA is the only pharmacy organization that really does advocate for pharmacists in all practice settings. So it's good to have a, a broad background. Yeah, for sure. So, hey, the reason I wanted you on the podcast today was an article you recently wrote for the American Journal of Health System Pharmacy. It was an amazing article. I saw it shared by hundreds of different pharmacists and pharmacy organizations on just my social media pages. So, I th- And when I read it, I thought it was really inspiring. Uh, you talked a lot about kind of pharmacy advocacy. And for someone like you, who's obviously been in so many different aspects of pharmacy and obviously worked at a premier health institute with the Cleveland Clinic being world renowned for their healthcare services, what inspired you, somebody who's already been highly successful, to write an article like this? Well, you know, I have to absolutely give credit to my co-author, Aaron Fox, at the University of Utah Medical Center. Aaron is an incredible advocate who's been quoted hundreds of times in the media and is the drug shortage uh, specialist throughout the country. So Aaron and I wrote this together and actually defined the term benevolent opportunism in this article because people say they're an opportunist and that sounds kind of self-serving, but I like to think of myself as a benevolent opportunist where I seize opportunity for the greater good, not for, for personal glory. And it started, Eric, back, boy, I don't know, um, 
2015 when uh, when we had all the egregious price increases with Valiant, where they uh, you know bought the company, the sole source company that made nitroprusside and isoproterenol. Now here at the Cleveland Clinic, we're big and we have an entire communications team, a media department, and we have a government relations uh, department. I talked a little bit about that in here, and I got a call from our communications people and said, "Hey Scott, there's a reporter." from the Wall Street Journal on the phone, uh, wondering if we've seen uh, price spikes in nitroprusside. And the Cleveland Clinic has been the number one heart hospital for, I don't know, 25 or 26 years. So we use more nitroprusside than anyone else. So I talked to Ed Silverman, who, who uh, has moved on now, and he runs Stat News for the Boston Globe. Uh, great guy, and I, everyone should sign up for Stat News. It's the best way I keep track of, of anything related to pharmaceuticals in the industry. But anyway, Ed and Jonathan Rockoff, yeah, I told him, if we used as much nitroprusside next year as we did this year at the same price. It cost the Cleveland Clinic, I don't remember, it's in the article, but it's something like $12 million a year more. And I said, that's one hospital. Think about how much money these uh, guys are sucking out of the health system. If they'd use all, the, all that thought and energy for good, you know, they could be a force of positive change in society, but they use all that for diabolical ways to gouge the public. But anyway, um, and then they published that, and that, that caught fire. You know, success breeds success. I talk about it in the article. I have a bias for yes. Before, I was just commiserating with all the other pharmacy chiefs going, man, did you see how that went up? And we felt helpless, you know. Yeah. Finally, I saw here's an outlet, right, the Wall Street Journal. And the word got out, and then success breeds success because lots of media started calling. Aaron actually testified, my co-author, in front of uh, the Senate. There were hearings. Valiant ultimately lost hundreds of millions of dollars stock value and had to change their name to Bosch because their name was so toxic. So that was one case where there was actually an outcome, a bad outcome, because of their practices. Uh, and I think Martin Scarelli is the other gentleman who is currently in prison. However... A lot of other people are doing bad things, and they're not. But anyway, so that, that's a little bit of how I got into it, Eric. That was a long answer to a short question. Oh, no, that's that's great. It's it's interesting. A lot of times those those rabbit holes that lead to stuff like that aren't a simple, well, one day I woke up and decided to be an advocate. It's, it's usually got something that motivates you, whether it be money or a patient interaction or something like that. So that's, that's interesting that Valiant is kind of the thing that sparked you with some of that. Yeah, and then AHA, American Hospital Association, Aaron and I were part of a survey to health systems saying, hey, how much of these drug prices increases cost you? And I can't even remember what the number was, but they published that, and they invited me to be at their press release. That resulted in, I don't know, five or six quotes. The article is supposed to be practical. That's actually what it's called. Advocacy as a professional obligation, practical application. But I've been very conscious. Uh, another person I work with is Jeff Rosner, who's my senior director of supply chain. I got a lot going on. I'm, I'm pretty high level, but Jeff is my peripheral brain, and he knows everything about drug prices. I think uh, some of the reporters like to quote us because we, we say provocative things. It's interesting. Now the word egregious, people talk about egregious drug prices. We consciously put that into one of the quotes we've had. We like these drug prices, these egregious drug prices, and now that's part of the lexicon. We talked about all the different things pharma does. You know, just when you think you haven't figured out here, they do this, and we said it's like whack-a-mole. Whack-a-mole is now I've talked a lot about. I wrote a, an op-ed on PBM and uh, the horrible practices they have, and I, I said the big three PBMs are oligopolies, and that's out there. When Selenium got bought and went up a thousand percent, said Selenium is not even a drug. It, it, it's been, <laughs> literally it's, it's a mineral. It's a drug as old as dirt. So there's just lots of sort of tips and things you can do to to get your story out there better, but porters like headlines and sound bites. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely a good way to get your message out by uh, by phrasing it, thinking about what you say when it comes to interacting, especially with the media. One thing that you've kind of mentioned a few times here is that you think it's important to be informed as well as be involved. What do you think are some of the easiest way for pharmacists to make sure they're informed and to stay involved? Yeah, and that's and I talk about that in the article, and, and you know you you have to develop vision, and I also talk a lot about leadership. I have a, a residency that trains leaders, you know, a master's and two year residency in hospital pharmacy administration, and I, I often talk about vision because I, I think I've got a pretty good vision for pharmacy now, and you know I didn't always when I was younger. I used to you know admire people who I thought had vision, and I, I thought. It was a, a trait like height, right? You, you have vision. You're born with vision. And it's not. Um, Eric, vision is learned. And the way you do that is to be informed. And professional associations like American Pharmacists Association are, are great ways to do that. Because when you talk to other thought leaders, when you go to state meetings, when you go to national meetings, you know, you pick up data points. You hear this there. You hear that there. And eventually, really, all a vision is it's pattern recognition, okay? You've got all these da- data points, and then just they come together, and you form a vision. There are other ways to be informed related to drug issues. So I subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I don't read the whole thing every day, but I certainly look at the app and read the headlines and dig in. That's good because it's not just pharmacy, right? It's broad industries. And now the Financial Times is more global. You know, I try to try to look at that. You can't look at everything. And then Stat News, which I mentioned, and Stat, uh, Ed writes original material, uh, Ed Silverman, but he also puts together like any link to any article on any drug company or any drug or anything like that. So those are those are ways that I try to be informed. And professional organizations like the American Pharmacists Association are a great way to do that. Yeah, and I really like that you mentioned a, a vision is learned because I think a lot of people do struggle with that. Of they want to be an advocate, but they don't see the path with it. And sometimes if you hop on a national organization or even a state organization, since we're both members of a Ohio Pharmacists Association on here as well, you can kind of pick up some of their vision or pick up part of their vision and really lead with it or go with it or help support that as far as pharmacy goes. Do you think with – Can I talk about that just a second? Oh, yeah. You just said the Ohio Pharmacists Association – Oh, my God, Eric, those guys are incredible, all right? Yeah. They are advocates. Uh, do you know Antonio Cha-Cha down there for yeah. OPA? Yes, I do. Uh, he's the one, as you know, right, uh, Ohio was ground zero for figuring out PBM shenanigans. Actually, I've heard other people saying that. I, I kind of put that term PBM shenanigans into the, the lexicon as well. But Antonio, not only has he passed laws for pharmacist provider status in Ohio and Collaborative Practice Act, but he's the one that worked with the Patriot reporters at the Columbus Dispatch that blew the lid off of the PBM spread in Ohio. And then we had $227 million that may be slightly off, maybe it's 223, but but incredible amount of spread between what Medicaid in Ohio, you and I as taxpayers, paid to the big PBMs and what they paid pharmacies. So, and then now, just last week, uh, Antonio worked with Michael Jackson, the uh, CEO of the Florida Pharmacy Association, and looked at Florida Medicaid data, and they saw that CVS pays their own pharmacies more than they pay other pharmacies. So, you know, community pharmacists have the deck stacked against them, and we're advocating hard at OPA and at APHA to stop that kind of behavior. And I think that's exactly why I kind of brought it up was, it's at least with our states, with us being members, we've really seen that somebody had that vision and saw some internal stuff that we could kind of drive with and made for some huge differences in our state and our profession. So that's why I want to make sure I kind of threw a little plug out there to some of the state organizations because they do amazing stuff too to help support APHA at the federal level as well. 
and they've got great meetings. So any pharmacist who's in Ohio that's listening to this absolutely has to uh, join uh, OPA and, and help them fight the good fight. And, and I would obviously also appreciate it if they, uh, they help us. We can't change the world at the American Pharmacy Association unless we have members, and we are going to represent members like they've never been represented before. So I'm thrilled to take this opportunity in this new job. Obviously, you know, with a lot of these laws being passed at various states, like provider status, which passed in Ohio and things like that, hopefully the goal is that trickles up to see what APHA does so we get that recognized for like the Medicare and some of the federally run programs. Is that kind of like how you've seen some of these things progress from more of a, a even a state level oh to my, APHA? Uh, you absolutely nailed it, Eric. Watch the news, right? Look at impeachment. Look at the State of the Union address. Look at tearing up speeches. I'm, I'm being apolitical which side you're on. I don't care which side you're on. But the message is nothing's getting done at the federal level, right? So we, not just uh, APHA, but the whole coalition of every pharmacy society tried real hard to get provider status, and there's reasons they didn't work scoring, we won't get into that. Um, and we're going to keep trying, we're going to fight for it, but you know what happened? You, what happens, you nailed it, it's at the states. OPA, last year, a year ago, and a couple months, got provider status passed, and we're now implementing it. There's pilots where pharmacists are going to be billing insurance companies for cognitive services. You know, the pharmacy patriots at the Iowa Pharmacy Association, PSW in Wisconsin, and many, many other states are just kicking butt and getting laws passed. So the American Pharmacy Association is going, as always, but when I get there, the states are going to be a major, major focus. How do we help our sisters and brothers at the state level be effective? And when they do something really cool, how do we help them collect data and spread Without the country, throughout the country, so other states can pass good laws, but also we can collect all that data. The reason provider status federally didn't pass is because the CBO, the scoring office, they only looked at the money it would cost to pay pharmacists, and they couldn't look at the offset for societal costs going down because patients are healthier. But we're going to put together data saying, you know what, in Ohio, insurance companies paid the pharmacists this, but overall medical benefits claims, as opposed to pharmacy benefit claims, reduce significantly. And we're going to show the value of pharmacists and we're going to push hard at the federal level by leveraging our, our creative uh, superheroes of the states. I'm surprised that the CBO actually was the one who, I don't want to say put the kibosh on that, but came out with like the, the bad number on it, if you will, the bad scoring, because you figure that with the amount healthcare spending is in this country and being like what almost 20% of our economy, if they could find a way to cut that by anything to help save taxpayers and Medicare and things like that in the federal budget, that they would be all over that. And so I'm so kind of surprised they weren't able to extrapolate that, if you will. They weren't able to use offsets. They never said they don't exist, but all they could do is say, what will this cost taxpayers uh, to fund this? They couldn't say, and we're going to see the decrease. So, you know, that's how the rules are. It's not a good thing, but uh, I don't think the people at the CBO uh, did anything, you know, intentionally, but you know, they play by the rules, but the rules kind of stink. So uh, we're going to tell the story of the, the whole story of overall societal cost and patient health improving. I think that's the key story with that. What is the best way that you think to get patient, patient advocates and other healthcare professionals on board with something like that? You know, that's a great question. That's something that Antonio, who I mentioned again, our uh, superhero at OPA, he, you know, it sounds self-serving. I touched this on the article. So if me as a pharmacist, if I go to the Ohio legislature, and we did this for the Collaborative Practice Act, we've got one of the most liberal Collaborative Practice Acts in the states now. You know, if I go and say, we should do this, it sounds like I'm self-serving for pharmacy. Right. So what I did 
and what other hospitals, what Czech Kazar did at uh, uh, Children's uh, in Columbus and other people, is we got our physicians to go. So internal medicine physicians want more pharmacists in their clinics to help them manage hypertension, diabetes, lipids. And they're like, they understand interdisciplinary care and that nurses should do this and pharmacists should do this. We have more pharmacology in our physicians. They're too busy with new patients. They love to give us their patients and let them manage them. So Dan Sullivan with the Cleveland Clinic is a physician that went down and testified because he's an internal medicine doc and he knows the value of pharmacists. And that really, really pushed it over the edge, having physicians advocate for pharmacists instead of just pharmacists, having other people in society understand the message. So educating people is a huge part of what we do and what we're going to continue to do at APHA. Yeah, that's awesome. And I I have another podcast that I am currently editing, but it'll probably come out after this one, actually, just because the timing of it. But Sue Paul is a huge uh, proponent of that. And she's going to be on the podcast talking about some of the things she's seen and why physicians and medical assistants want pharmacists really helping to manage their patients. So I'm glad you brought that up. Well, they have to, right? And in certain groups, I get it, you know, certain associations, they function as trade associations and they're worried about other people getting prescribing, you know, because they kind of think about like turf wars. But when you look at the numbers, I should have looked it up, but what is it? Like 300,000 physicians. I'm making that number up. Don't quote it, but uh, we're going to be short in 10 years. There aren't enough physicians, right? We need to have other advanced practice folks being involved because the argument that only doctors can do that is absolutely wrong. Uh, pharmacists can manage drug therapy better than a lot of physicians because that's all we focus on. Now, doctors do a lot of really super cool things, but we are the drug therapy experts. Yeah, and you know, and kind of preaching back to where you're where you're currently leaving with the Cleveland Clinic. I actually did a pharmacy rotation there in the oncology floor, and I think Mark Earl was the uh, the pharmacist I was with, and I saw him make so many interactions on oncology, even with oncology specialists, where he was going, "Hey, no, we'll do this one because it saves money and it works just as good," or "Hey, no, we'll do this one because it has a slightly better outcome," or "We'll do this one because of the patient's age and demographics, it works better," and. That was somebody, obviously, he was specially trained, but he was able to work with actual oncologists and even improve their practice, which we know those drugs are just, you know, they might have a comma or two in the price tag for some of them. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Mark Earl because uh, he is a superstar, and, you know, it's been a few years since you did rotations. Mark's been promoted several times, and we just made him our sixth system director of oncology. So he's in charge of uh, oncology pharmacy for all the Ohio hospitals, Florida, Abu Dhabi, London, and uh, he's just a great guy who continues to drive practice forward. Oh, yeah, for sure. I could see that when I was there with him. Uh, kind of digressing back here to the article a little bit, uh, one part I really enjoyed was where you discussed amplifying your voice and making sure that you tell your story. Can you elaborate on some of the things you've done to do that and perhaps what others can do? So I think there's several things. And the one is that we already talked about is getting other people like physicians involved. Now, we have uh, pharmacists across the spectrum in every setting. In hospitals, they all have a government relations person, and uh, hospitals are actually incredibly good at lobbying. And the reason is that every congressperson or legislator or representative, almost everyone in the whole world, has got a hospital or a district, and there's voters that are employees there. And and I think what I've done is leverage better than most, well, except Aaron, who's an incredible superstar at Utah, leverage the brand of the organization I've been. I've been given pretty long leash here, which I've earned. We talked a little bit in the article about 
credibility and trust. I've earned the trust of senior leadership here and our former CEO, Toby Cosgrove, who's probably the best known CEO of any health system in the last 20 years. He was an advocate about price increases. He used to be in the media a lot about it. He'd call me and, and I'd help him prepare. And then there was too much to do. So he just let me kind of take over and be the voice. So I've amplified my voice by being the voice of the Cleveland Clinic. You know, no one cares what Scott Kenor thinks, but they all care <laughs> what the chief pharmacy officer at the Cleveland Clinic thinks. So it's not about you, it's about what you can leverage. And then I'm really excited to become the CEO of APHA and be the official voice of all pharmacy and advocate as hard as I can. Uh, the other things there are, um, you know, work with state societies, they're great. The state says it's all volunteers, right? You go there and say, I'd like to get involved. They're like, okay, you know, because they, they don't have money for budgets. And, you know, get involved, and all of them are doing advocacy, and there's legislative days. Uh, the other thing social media. You're very involved in social media. You know, how do we get the word out? Doing things like this. Your podcast is amplifying my voice to do good for society and for pharmacy. So, you know, it's, uh, there's lots of ways to amplify your voice. Well, thanks. Yeah. And so social media, I always thought it's a good platform for it too. I think you have to be a little careful about what you say and things like that. But I do see on yours all the time, you're always sharing things that are pro-pharmacist and pro kind of what your vision or what you think pharmacy should be. So I'm glad that you mentioned that as a good way to help amplify your voice and kind of get over some of the political bickering and whateverness we see on social media, the, the Dolly Parton challenge or whatever it is that's trending at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, and you're right. You have to be careful, you know, so we want our pharmacists to all be successful. I have a thing because I teach residents so much in leadership. I always say, don't forget where your paycheck comes from because if I'm posting something because of the nature that I'm the, the chief pharmacy officer at the Cleveland Clinic, I'm representing the clinic whether I want to or not. Even if I put a disclaimer on that, that says this is these are Scott Knorr's opinions, they aren't. You know, so yeah. the last thing you want to do is you know lose your day job because you're advocating. So you got to be smart, right? So that was why, quite frankly, Eric, when when the recruiter called from APHA, you know, I, I'm always telling people don't forget where your paycheck comes from. My paycheck doesn't come from advocacy; it comes from the clinic. I'm passionate about advocacy. I've been able to leverage it and do a lot. But I thought, God, APHA, I said, what if my paycheck came from an organization where that was my job to do advocacy <laughs> full-time? I'm like, that's incredible. So yeah. when I got the job offer, I'm like, okay, guys, I'll take it. How much do I have to pay you? They're like, Scott, we're going to pay you. I'm like, oh, my God, you guys are going to pay me to do this? That's a slight <laughs> exaggeration for effect. But uh, I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to advocate for pharmacy and for patients full-time. Yeah, that's awesome too. And I, I know APHA is a pretty strong presence, uh, presence on all the social medias as well. So they'll be good to see what comes out of you and comes out of them at that time. Uh, kind of yeah, so it's just it's the next step. You know, I've been able to advocate a lot here, but oh my God, I'm excited. To, that is going to be my day job. That's where my paycheck comes from is to drive pharmacy forward and help pharmacists empower patients. It's really exciting, Eric. Oh yeah, and I'm, I'm, I can just tell by the passion of your voice, I'm excited for you and excited to see what comes out of it. Uh, but one thing I do want to kind of mention, too, is you had some call to action points in the article you published. And I don't know if, if you want to read them, you want me to read them. But, you know, I thought they were good points we should probably bring up if you want to start with them. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, I try to do this. I write a lot and I try to have some deliverables, some take home messages. So I'll just read them in here in order. Uh, the first one, you know, and, and this was aimed 
it was in the ASHP journal, American Society of Health System Pharmacists, so it was kind of aimed toward uh, that audience. However, I think it's broadly applicable. So develop relationships with the media, marketing, communications, and government relation teams in your organization. I say GR, we didn't talk about that, but I had Gina Petridis here. She's incredible. She's our GR person. She, I actually was able to write some federal law that got inserted on drug shortage a few years ago because Gina uh, helped me uh, work with all the, uh, the federal politicians. Next one, participate in local, state, and national pharmacy organizations that lobby for state and federal laws to improve patient care. Three, develop relationships with state and U.S. senators and members of Congress. Offer them tours of your department to make an impression on them related to what pharmacy does for patient safety. I put that here because most legislators and really the majority of the public doesn't really know all the amazing things we do in pharmacy. Now, the Cleveland Clinic, we're a showcase for automation and technology. We have uh, the first Italian chemotherapy compounding robots from Locioni from that company. We got the first pediatric specific patient robot uh, in the country. So this place shows great. I love to get legislators in here. They, they're, they're like, oh my God, pharmacy is so cool. Uh, but you know, take the time. Not everyone's got that, but it's still take them Show them what your people do. Number four is make time to speak to the media about events uh, affecting patient care. You, dude, you saw it, right? Uh, the big, big article on chaos in retail, big chain pharmacies, right? Yeah. Now is our time to speak out. You know, reach out to the media. Talk about pharmacist reimbursement models are wrong. The PBM model it just rewards volume. Go faster. Have a drive-through. Pharmacists should be counseling patients and, you know, looking at medication duplications and doing MTM. So we've got to change the value equation of reimbursement. Five, support state pharmacy political action committees and the ASHP and APHA PAC political action committee, and certainly the Ohio pharmacist one, because that's really important working with legislators. And the last one, I'd add number six now. Join APHA because we are going to fight hard and we need members. So those would be the six things that I would say folks need to do. So I like some things you mentioned there. And one of the things you mentioned repeatedly in, in those points was patient care. I think when it comes to that, we can't lose sight of that. And what you said earlier, we're not a self-serving professional in any sort of capacity, especially I can't think of many pharmacists who are, just have that personality trait. So I think that's the thing you got to bring up when you're talking with people who are legislators or advocates or anyone you want to make a difference with is you got to look at how does this affect patient care is like the primary outcome. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And, you know, and I say the word patient all the time. Now, I advocate for patients. I'm a pharmacist. You're a pharmacist. We do that through our profession, right? But, you know, pharmacy is a medium to help us take care of patients. That's As pharmacists, that's how we do it. But, you know, I, I thought, uh, and, and actually I kind of came up with this when I went through the interview process at, at uh, APHA, I thought, you know, how do you succinctly say what we need to do? And what I think organizations like APHA need to do is it's as simple as it's we empowering pharmacists to care for patients, right? That's what we have to do. We have to pass laws that let pharmacists care for patients. We have to make sure society understands the value so that pharmacists can care for patients. It's really about empowering pharmacists. And I think that's a big thing, too. When you, when you go talk to a state legislator and say you're talking about like a PBM issue, 
they really don't care what you get paid. What they care about is what you can provide. And if you have to shut your doors and you can't provide services and other pharmacists are shutting their doors, patients don't have access to care and to medications. That's what they care about. So that's why, you know, you have to think about the phrasing of it a little bit and kind of how you present the argument. Absolutely. Just telling them pharmacists don't make money enough money off prescriptions. They, they don't care. They're like, okay, you know, that's your business. You chose to be in it. Yeah. But the impact that has, and again, I'm going to throw numbers out there that are Absolutely not wrong. Something like 180 pharmacies, community pharmacies have closed in Ohio in the last several years. But that does create problems because it creates pharmacy deserts, right? We talk about in big cities where there's food deserts, where residents can't get fresh food because there's no grocery stores. They're becoming pharmacy deserts across the country because as uh, large chains gobble up pharmacies, they're closing them. And, and then there are big gaps where patients have to drive miles and miles. So those are the things that resonate with legislators because they resonate with their mom who can't get her prescriptions, right? Yeah. And the other thing I think that no one ever brings up is if you have a pharmacy in your district, that's people employed, that's jobs, that's people paying taxes into the system that they need to help run the state as well. So it's kind of a more of a tertiary Absolutely. thing. And we're still, uh, you know, we're always in the top several uh, most respected professions because what we do is benevolent. We help patients. We we always talk to patients and, and we're the face of healthcare when they come to us. So we need to leverage that goodwill that we've got to change the world, brother. Oh, yeah. Totally agree with you on that one. Do you have anything to add before I go into the last two questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast? And I would uh, encourage folks uh, to, to read the article you referenced uh, in HHP. Advocacy is a professional obligation, practical application. It's a great article if you haven't read it already. I know it shared it across almost all the social medias that I've seen through a number of different pharmacists and organizations. But go read it, and I think it's really impactful. And thank you again for writing that, too. Well, thank you. It was, a, you know, uh, it was an opportunity to to share some learnings that Aaron and I have had. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. So the questions I ask everyone here is, if there was one thing you could change about pharmacy, and I'm glad I get to ask you this question, what would it be? It would be how we pay for it. Okay, it's transactional, and it should be quality and safety. So biggest thing I would change about pharmacy is rewarding, you know, having the right incentives, right? The reason we have drive throughs and people count as fast as they can and don't get bathroom breaks is because uh, pharmacies are rewarded for filling more. What we need to do is the kind of things we get with provider status where we improve quality and uh, we're, we're reimbursed for that. You know, and as we get into more at-risk models, like in health systems, uh, I'm able to add a bunch of pharmacists. I had, when I got here, we had two pharmacists in our medicine clinics. We got 29 pharmacists embedded in medicine clinics not because they're billing, but because in those clinics, the hemoglobin A1Cs are better for their diabetic patients than the other ones, reducing total costs. So that is the biggest thing to improve pharmacy is to have, uh, have us uh, be able to, to uh, be reimbursed based on quality over quantity. Oh, I, I love that topic. That's, that's a great answer for that one. The next question, if there was one law you could change in pharmacy, whether it be federal or state, obviously you're going to be working on the federal level here. What would it be? Uh, federal would be provider status. Pharmacists need to be recognized by uh, Medicare and Medicaid. As, you know, and I love them. Nurse practitioners and PAs, they're fantastic. They're helping us fill the physician void. They have so much less pharmacology than we do. It's, it's, we are the drug therapy experts. It is ridiculous that the number of people that uh, are providers that don't have the training. We're, the 
But science physicians who do a lot more residency and all, we are the most highly educated and trained profession. And it's just a travesty that we don't have federal provider status. So that you asked for the one law, I would say the top three laws would be provider status, provider status, and provider status. <laughs> also, we need to fight this PBM shenanigans. Uh, that's secondary. DIR fees. Last year, the big PBM stole $6.5 million from my 20 community pharmacies and my specialty pharmacy after adjudication, right? They paid for the drug and then they clawed back money with phony quality incentives that you can't measure or, or they can't point to. It's just a money grab by the PBM. So that would be PBM reform as well. That, that's two, but those are those are the elephants in the room. And I'm glad to see that they're on your radar because they, from someone who comes from a health system, which I know some people were like, hey, you know, you're with ASHP, how'd you come into APHA? I think that addressing those two topics really fixes a lot of the community pharmacy and will spill over into a lot of the other aspects of pharmacy. So I think it's great that those are on your radar. A pharmacist is a pharmacist of pharmacist. They're all my sisters and brothers, right? We're fighting for all of them. Yep. I, that's exactly what why I do this podcast and why I invite people on of different different backgrounds is because I want to try and do what I can to be an advocate as well. So, hey, thanks, Scott, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Appreciate your insight. And I'm looking forward to all the exciting things you're going to do as the uh, CEO of APHA in the near future. And thank you for helping amplify my voice so that we can get the message out, brother. Thanks again. I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, listening today, listeners. If there's if there's one thing you can do for us, go rate us on Apple iTunes, Google Play, wherever this is you're listening to this podcast on. It will help us immensely so people can get find what I'm doing here and also listen to people like Scott and listen to new perspectives on politics and pharmacy. I think the more we work to elevate it, the more we're going to get some of these things that Scott talked about, like provider status done, because more people are going to find it who aren't pharmacists and also support us with that. So with that, thank you for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics. Hey, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. This is Eric reminding you to go to pharmacist.com and sign up to become an APHA member. As a pharmacist, you can sign up for a yearly membership for as little as $129 a year or less if you're a resident or even less than that if you're a student. So don't forget to do that to help join Scott and me to fight causes like this to help make our profession better for us and for patients we serve. Thanks. Thanks.